Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. I'm Ryan McMahon in Whitehorse, under a pillow fort, sitting in for Jesse Brown. Today I'm joined by journalist and podcaster extraordinaire Rick Harp in Winnipeg. Hello, Rick. Hello, Ryan. You know, we only ever talk when... I'm not in the city or when you're not. We live in the same city yes. and we never talk. We live in the same neighborhood, in fact. I'm starting to wonder about this. I'm starting Two to streets down. <laughs> I know, yeah, exactly. Is there something you're not telling me? Well, I was going to ask you the same thing, but let's have this conversation <laughs> offline. We've got to get That's, on with the show, brother. That sounds good. Today on the show, we're going to talk about your documentary, The Power Was With Us, a documentary about Idol No More. We're going to get into who you created this with, why you think this is an important documentary to be made today, and uh, all stops in between. We're also going to talk about the viral fever sweeping the nation. Is coronavirus really all that bad, or is it just an opportunity for racism? Thanks for being here, Rick. Glad to do so. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Christopher Hodgendorn, Adam Nikiforic, Hannah Lawson, Barb Derbyshire, Isaac Seegers, Max Pittman, Dallas Jokic, and Ben Nickel. I'm an animal surgery coordinator 
musician, and hummus fiend. I support Canada Land because when it comes to news, I think mediums need scrutiny just as much as their messages. The other shows, Oppo, Commons, Thunder Bay, are great too. I wish everyone at Canada Land continued success and thank them for their great work. begin with breaking news from Toronto where a man in his 50s is under quarantine tonight believed to be Canada's first case of the mysterious new coronavirus. Canada now has its second confirmed case of coronavirus in Toronto and one presumptive case in British Columbia. The number has grown. There are now three possible cases of novel coronavirus in Canada. Dr. Rao, should we be concerned about the rising number of deaths associated with this coronavirus? I don't think so, and I know that's going to sound really strange for me to say that. Rick? Yes, sir. Uh, I flew on an airplane yesterday to Whitehorse, Yukon, and on the plane were many people uh, donning masks, but the majority of us were not donning masks. And I saw some people being very diligent with um, hand sanitizer, sanitizing their their chairs, sanitizing their armrests, sanitizing their faces or whatever the hell else they were rubbing their sanitizer on. <laughs> Have you heard, Rick, that yeah. the coronavirus is sweeping across the nation? Well, it'd be difficult not to kind of draw that impression from the kind of uh, breathless coverage we've been getting, although it seems to have somewhat tempered off a bit as we as we learn more and more about this particular member of the coronavirus family or novel coronavirus uh, as some call it mm. but you know on the other hand there's social media which is a different kettle of fish and uh, the fish are kind of rotten people are either out of mischief or out of ignorance just going to town on this and and it's as much as i love social media this is one of the things to which it is vulnerable Absolutely. It's been a rough couple of days. I mean, if if we're going to judge the conversation around coronavirus based on Twitter trends alone, mm -hmm. then the coronavirus is the dumpster fire of all dumpster fires, complete with some of the most grotesque racism I've read publicly in a long time. This, you know, this is the kind of racism that just hides under the surface that you know that you know is there at the dinner party and you just kind of have to tiptoe through conversations. Including from journalists, right? I mean, people who should know better, who should at least not be feeding into that, right? There was that tweet from that uh, W5 journalist, right? He was took a selfie with uh, what appears to be an Asian gentleman who was his barber and said, what did he say? Oh, hopefully all I got today was a haircut. Yeah. yeah. And he apologized for it later for any what is it, any harm it may have caused, that usual sort of, I never understand what that's supposed to mean. Yeah. But uh, here's my question to you, though, Ryan. Uh -huh. Are media covering coronavirus or are they covering fear? I mean, this is a question that's been put to my mind by an excellent uh, recent column by Andre Picard, the health reporter, the health columnist for the Globe and Mail. I mean, to what extent are we even talking about the, the coronavirus? I mean, this is a perennial question for any disease, but... I just wonder, what exactly is the story here that's being told? I think that the story from where I sit uh, today, having you know followed it a little bit over the last couple of days, is that you've pointed out something exactly right. I don't think we're covering the virus itself, you know, where it came from, what the contagion is, what the symptoms. I don't know right now what the symptoms are. 
But I know that there have been a whole whack of people blaming the coronavirus on the diet of Chinese people. Mm-hmm. And the the misinformation that has spread over like where this virus has come from and 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 why it is has spread the way it is really has taken up the headlines. And you know, you look at blog TO and other uh, outfits like it, they're running they're running stock photos of what appear to be Chinese folks wearing masks in grocery stores. They're running stock photos of empty Chinese grocery stores where like people are not even leaving the house anymore because the virus is here. It's really, really been shoddy, shoddy, terrible journalism. And and the practice has been, it looks to be contagious. But I think in some ways, I mean, it's 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 a somewhat existential question for for the media because it has two different drivers, right? On the one hand, they're supposed to be informing. On the other hand, they want eyeballs, they want eardrums, they want clicks. And so the way to do that is to inflame, right? And so it's that classic distinction between, you know, heat and light. Uh, Which one are you actually casting here? And proportionality, you know, uh, the, the, the amount of coverage relative to risk, I mean, you you take your life in your hands just by stepping into a car or going anywhere near where cars are. Alcohol is is linked to a lot of horrible maladies and fatalities. Why aren't these leading the news? Well, because it's not news. But it, it sure you know has me scratching my head about what are media there for if not to help us put things into proper proportional perspective. Well, and and but the language that the media is using here also needs to come under fire because you have and please do not anybody listen to this please do not click on this story but I'm going to bring it up anyway. You have a media outfit like True North mm. running tweets and and stories like could the coronavirus be linked to Chinese biological warfare program? Well, you put headlines like that into the handful of dummies and that will spread like wildfire. And now we're talking about biological warfare with China. Yeah, yeah. And and the language that we use here is really, really important. You brought up uh, Picard's column in the Globe and Mail from January 27th, and he's also picked up on this. And, and by exaggerating the language, using language like killer virus and, and fixating on relatively low body counts at this point, you know, you're really, really just amplifying this narrative that we're all doomed. I, I was in Toronto during the SARS outbreak in 2003. And um, at the time, my partner was pregnant with our first daughter. And, you know, you couldn't go anywhere in that city. I mean, we would go to, you know, doctor's appointments and to check up on baby and everything. You couldn't go anywhere without masks and, and hand washing stations. They were all over the city. And I have to tell you, the fear that we felt just by not having the information at that time, mm-hmm. we we were afraid to leave the house all the time. And mm-hmm. and that was just because of the, the way the SARS virus uh, was being covered and where that sort of false uh, information w- was was coming from at that time. And And we're talking about, I mean, the internet was definitely a thing, but I mean... It wasn't like a world of of Twitter headlines and and fast breaking news like it is today. And so I think the the language, the language that yep. we're using right now, really needs to come under fire as well. Well, I mean, I think the Beaverton got it right when it just uh, it, you know it's a satirical news site for those who don't know, and it just talked about how 
they, they created this character who was lecturing the government, you know, what, what's your response to coronavirus, man? Meanwhile, he's not going out and getting a flu shot. I mean, the, the flu shot, of course, and I'm about to go get mine later today, so I'm not a hypocrite, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, the flu has a much greater uh, death toll attributable to it. And we know it, like we know what to do. And flu shots either prevent the flu or they attenuate the flu when, if and when you get it. And so here's the thing. There's, there's sort of, I mean, not to be too cute, but there's, I think there's sort of an elephant in the newsroom. And that is, and we're seeing this with climate change as well, facts alone are not enough. I mean, you can have, and this is where I maybe kind of sympathize with some people who are trying to get their stories consumed either on TV, on the internet, on the radio, whatever. I mean, you're trying to titillate, right? And you're also tapping into kind of primordial fear of death kind of thing, fear of the unknown. But um, apparently facts alone are not enough to attract attention or to, to gain interest. And again, the question is, how do you cover fear? How do you cover ignorance without perpetuating it or potentially amplifying it with your coverage? And I really think we have to wrestle with this, especially now that there's multiple sources and spins on, on things. I have one more thing that I wanted to touch on here. Jane Litvinenko is tracking fake and false reporting for BuzzFeed. Yep. And she does a remarkable job. She's doing this with stories in Iran, with stories uh, in the Ukraine. Um, she's connecting it to Trump and, and other things. And now she's tracking the coronavirus story. Should more of this type of journalism exist uh, today in 2020, where because clickbait and extraordinary headlines uh, is sort of the way people are clicking on news, do we need more reporters and fact checkers like Jane publicly doing this? And how can this type of a journalism practice evolve inside of mainstream media outfits? Well, just to, to harken back to what I said, I'm not sure uh, counterfactuals are enough. If facts alone aren't enough, I include in that counterfactuals. I mean, who was that Toronto Star reporter, Daniel Dale, who just yeah. like cataloged the litany of lies, of misrepresentations that Trump the U.S. president uh, would would spew on an hourly basis, never mind daily basis. Yeah, what did that achieve? If the goal is to move a society to certain types of action on climate change, to to move society to certain types of action on you know making us safer from from potentially uh, you know lethal diseases on on you know. So on the other hand, a lot of reporters say, "Hey, man, just the facts. That's all I care about." And uh, but on the other hand, I, I do get a sense that a lot of journalists are motivated by a sense of purpose, by a sense of mission. If they don't want to change the world themselves, they want to see the world change in a positive direction. So I don't I don't know. I, I I'd like to see the evidence as to whether these types of counterfactual activities, which I wholeheartedly support intuitively, but I don't know if scientifically we can say, ah, oh, they make a difference. But let me let me raise one more point too. I think you could argue credibly that medical journals are themselves a form of media and forever they've been behind paywalls, much to people's dismay. Well, it seems some of that uh, scientific journal community, if you want to call it that, is taking a creative commons approach in light of the potential risk faced by this. And this is really exciting, actually, because they're they're taking their paywalls down. They say, look, the, the threat could conceivably be too great. We must share as much as possible. And you see that echoed in the approach of scientists. You know, in Australia, they've just discovered how to replicate the virus so they can share that with other people so a, a potential vaccine could be developed. Like, I think this, if anything, should be heralded, uh, this commitment to the, to the common well-being. Rick. Yes, Ryan. Um, are you a podcast listener by chance? When I'm not making them, I try to listen to them. Have you ever listened to Shortcuts, this show? Of course. 
Oh, so you do know that uh, on the show we do a segment called Duly Noted? I duly note the Duly Noted segment. Was this the most obnoxious way to set up the Duly Noted segment possibly known to man? I think you could have tried a little harder in obnoxiousness terms. All right. Well, we've reached the point in the show where we are going to duly note some things. I have two this week, so I'm going to give, Ooh. I'm going to go first, then you go, and then I'll do my last one. Okay. Does that sound okay? That sounds more than fair. All right. There was a story that had quite a bit of reach, actually, over this last week, and it came from the National Observer and reporter Emma McIntosh. Now, Emma McIntosh, she's an investigative reporter um, who focuses uh, her work mostly on on uncovering misinformation or disinformation, and she's an incredible reporter. I have a lot of respect uh, for her and for the National Observer. And I will say that when I saw this uh, this article headlined, What We Mean When We Say Indigenous Land Is Unseated, I got really, really excited. And in reading the article, she tries to set the table to have a conversation around what is happening in British Columbia, namely what is happening in Wet'suwet'en Territory. Mm. And reading through it, um, she talks about the duty to consult. She talks about free prior and informed consent, UNDRIP, all of the big words that everyone is supposed to be using right now. (laughs) But she does one thing very wrong in my eyes. Uh Uh-oh. What'd she do? The article starts out by saying, you might be living on unceded land. And then she says, to be more precise, the Maritimes, nearly all of BC and a swath of Eastern Ontario and Quebec, which includes Ottawa, sits on territories that were never signed away by Indigenous people who inhabited them before Europeans settled in North America. In other words, this land was stolen. And she goes on to lay out her her argument here uh, quite beautifully, actually. But the one thing that I will say in all kinds of coverage like this, is all land in Canada, whether under treaty or not under treaty, is unceded. Yeah, absolutely. And because we are treaty people that signed treaty with what is now called Canada, it does not mean we have ceded anything to Canada. That fundamentally, what we understood the agreement to be was a sharing of land, that you would stay in your canoe, we would stay in ours. You would go live over there, we would go live over here. When you were hungry, we'd feed you and vice versa. In fact, in Treaty 3, in the education clause of Treaty 3, the Anishinaabe people say, you give us one of your sons to teach and we will give you one of ours to teach. And I find that this unceded land conversation in Canada really erases the reality and the indigenous perspective of what this relationship is. And that is what I wanted to duly note. You know, I mean, yeah, for a bilateral agreement to have effect, you'd think there'd be bilateral understanding, mutual understanding of what the terms and conditions are of that agreement. And as I've maybe said on this podcast or my own is, you know, settlers seem to view treaties as transactions, you know, final closed, whereas indigenous people see them as just the start of the terms of the relationship going forward, as you've just so uh, well laid out. Well, and it's a living, breathing document Mm -hmm. and relationship that never ends. That's right. So therefore, it would make no sense for indigenous people to agree to the ceding of land because we didn't want to end as a peoples. That that was never in our mind. And in fact, we have no word or conceptual framework around the ceding 
or the sale of land. It would have been such a such a mind-boggling idea for those that sign treaty. And I've talked to a lot of language experts in a lot of indigenous nations that have signed or or that live under treaty. Yeah. And it's it's unanimous. There was no word for that concept. And so I just wanted to point that out. Good work, Emma. Good work, National Observer. Keep up that good work. But let's investigate what we actually mean when we talk about ceded or unceded land. Yeah. It's definitely wishful thinking on the part of the settler states. So duly noted. Whoops. Should I say it a little less? Uh, <laughs> a little less British magistrate. <laughs> duly noted, sir. Um, maybe it's fitting in this case. <laughs> My thing to duly note are some uh, very fresh calls to action about an enduring topic. That is to say the persistent glaring racial inequity that uh, infuses the Canadian media industry. And this was uh, these calls to actions concerning Canadian media diversity were just put out by the Canadian Journalists of Color and the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. And basically, they, they make seven calls to action that uh, hope to, you know, give some encouragement to the industry to, to make it not so deeply unrepresentative of the audience it, it purports to serve, unless, you know, as we've already discussed, maybe it only has a certain audience in mind. So these are, you would hope, are fairly self-evident, but it's not unhelpful to make them, you know, specific and clear and restate them. So one is begin self-reporting of newsroom demographics on a regular basis. Apparently, data's uh, not been collected for a long time, even though in the, you know, the other side of the border, the U.S., we do know what the racialized makeup of the of U.S. newsrooms has been since 1978. So um, hire more editors and reporters of color, promote them to management positions, consult with racialized communities, uh, take a structural approach as opposed to a one-off workshop, create scholarships, mentor people, bring them into the system, and... Uh, Start even earlier, work on diversity and inclusion in Canadian journalism schools. None of this should need to be said, and the fact that it does is a telling thing, but good on these folks for uh, making it uh, impossible to ignore. Duly noted. In this next Duly Noted, we talk about Kobe Bryant, sexual assault, rape, and the media coverage of Kobe Bryant's death. And... We'd be remiss uh, on this podcast to not look at the way uh, his death was was covered in the media. And I know that, you know, one of the light criticisms of Canada Land from a few people has been that Canada Land never talks about sports and, and sports media. And so I thought today I would just bring in a couple of pieces that I think really stood out in terms of the coverage of Kobe Bryant's uh, tragic uh, death here just a few days ago. And so First of all, I want to say that obviously we can talk about Kobe Bryant in all aspects of his life. And when we talk about the legacy he's left behind, we talk about the entire legacy. And we should expect to have that conversation with someone as complicated as Kobe Bryant. And so to talk about his remarkable career, to talk about him as a leader on the basketball court, to talk about him as a philanthropist now in retirement, to talk about him as a coach as a, as a father, as a family person, but also to talk about him as someone that was accused of rape. I think you have to have the entire conversation. I think the big question is when to have that conversation and how to have that conversation. And I'm not sure that minutes after the plane crashes 
is the time to cover the story via Twitter. And because tweets lack context and often, you know, get um, blown out of proportion by the Twitterverse in ways that are unhelpful and, and not in any way healthy in form or otherwise, I think everybody's reaction to the death of this man, um, their reactions are warranted. And for those that would never forget Kobe Bryant as an athlete or as a person because of those accusations and because of the settlement he made out of court with the woman that accused him of rape, for those that never forgive him, of course you are entitled to that. And those opinions were expressed loud and clear and are still being expressed. And in fact, there's one really, really extreme version of this with comedian Ari Shafir, who went as far as to live stream on Instagram him laughing about the death of the rapist. He says Kobe Bryant finally got what he deserved, which on the spectrum is an extreme version of this sort of response. To the flip side of the spectrum where you have sports media like Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley and others that are not just in the sports media, but attached to the game and attached to Kobe Bryant intimately, you know, expressing their love for him as a basketball player, as a leader, uh, as a family man. And I think lost in all of this is the sobering truth that so many of our heroes in pop culture and mainstream culture and sports, in art, in film, are really not good people. And we should remember that. It's like learning about Bill Cosby, you know? And as a comedian, as somebody that goes, oh, well, Bill Cosby often in conversations is held up as one of the top 10 comedians of all time. Well, yeah, he's a, he was a fucking creep too. He sexually assaulted dozens of women, raped dozens of women. He's a monster, but he did incredible things in his career. And we should always remember that these are just human beings and that when we learn of their indiscretions, you definitely can't ignore them because they hurt other real human beings. And regardless of whether you win five championships or eight championships or 12 championships, you were still accused of what you were accused of. And it's terrible in the moment that you understand the loss that Kobe Bryant's family is going through. Their young daughter, Gigi, who was 13, who by you know all accounts had all of this promise and flair for life and was this beautiful young woman who passes away in the accident. And seven others, other kids that were going to that, that basketball practice pass away. It's terrible that people's reflections intersect with the tragic loss, but it is what it is. And I think that Kobe Bryant or any other public figure that signs up for fame and fortune still deserves to have their lives interrogated and investigated when they hurt people. And the hurt that he caused that family and the settlement out of court was noted in a way. And the fallout has been enormous. I mean, there are people that reported on these things about Kobe in talking about his legacy that are receiving death threats and that are receiving just terrible, hateful emails and, and comments on social media. And, and this is why social media is so toxic is that it allows people to anonymously drop the most vile shit you could ever imagine onto another human being. 
But I guess this is to say that that sort of interrogation and that sort of reflection is more than warranted when we talk about anybody, whether it's Kobe Bryant or anyone else that may pass on tragically or otherwise a fair and balanced assessment of who they were is fair game for me in media and and it's important duly noted this episode is brought to you by the center for addiction and mental health right now there is an opioid crisis right now there is a mental health crisis but right now it is mental health week and what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. So, Rick, you now own the title documentary filmmaker. Welcome <laughs> to the club. <laughs> Glad to be here, I think. Did you know the club meant uh, you would be broke, uh, tired, and frustrated for the rest of your life now, having made a documentary film? Well, I'm certainly the last two, but thanks to the, the good graces and vision of APTN National News, I did not have to go out of pocket to, to get this made, which in and of itself is an extraordinary situation, I, I realize. So, But yeah, it was a lot of 12-hour days for weeks on end, and uh, it didn't actually, I shouldn't say this, but uh, episode two, the back half of the documentary, didn't get finished until a few days ago at 1.45 a.m. So good times. Wow. Yeah. So congratulations. I mean, you know, this is, um, it's no small task to deliver one documentary, never mind two. You mentioned APTN. Talk about how that partnership came to be. Well, Karen Pugliese, who's been on uh, Canada Land, uh, a friend of the show, uh, she, when she was a, a executive director of News and Current Affairs, approached me and said, you know, we've got all these archives of all these different news stories we've done. And as we all know, when, when you see that three-minute story on the news, or usually 180 seconds, 
it takes about an hour of tape to kind of you know create the the the, the choice of shots that you want and clips. Uh, what happens to that fifty-seven plus minutes of, of footage that doesn't get used? Well, it gets kind of archived and it doesn't go anywhere. It often doesn't get used uh, typically. So she thought this is a gold mine potentially we're sitting on. What about we get you? And then I said, you know, well, why not Tim Fontaine as well? Because I love working with him. Uh, go through our archives, see what we have enough critical mass for, and then pull together uh, some documentaries. And so, wow, it was just such a, a rich repository of an amazing time because it's, it's very much a historical retrospective, right? I, I call it kind of a time travelogue of the initial emergence of Idle No More. And, and when, when people first found this voice, this collective voice and visibility, realizing, you know, the power was with us to say what's important to us, to take the lead on articulating our realities in resistance to what was then a, a, a bill that a lot of people were concerned about. Bill C-45 passed under the, uh, the Harper government in, in late 2012, early uh, 2013. So it, uh, mm. Yeah, that's how it came to be. Pretty straightforward, but you know, it took two years to get us there. I was just going to ask. It's you know, documentary and, and the process of assembling yeah. uh, all of the source material um, is is quite daunting. You mentioned two years. What is it like to to sort of dust off all of that archival footage and and look back on it and and take the time, the two years that it took to to really let this material breathe and and for you to find the story and to break the story and all of that material. Well, I mean, daunting is definitely the word. Uh, you have to, in a sense, reconstruct the timeline. We thought, you know, this this narrative was so inherently exciting and and compelling in and of itself. Why mess with it? Because, you know, as you recall, the, the events were playing out in real time. We didn't know where it was going to go next. We didn't know how it was going to end. Nobody did, not least the state, which was, you know, really uh, at great pains to try to under, understand what I don't know more was about. And so something that I, that, that I would be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, what we were also able to do, I, think, I would say 85% of the content there is from APTN's own archives. But we also discovered that we had some some holes. I mean, Idle No More was so big, everyone was unable to, to track it all, right? And so we found that we weren't always able to, to find the footage we wanted. And then people like yourself would disclose, hey, I've got all this footage. <laughs> I'd love the world to see. I wonder what to do with it. And so that happened in your case because you were there in Ottawa for that, that big momentous meeting of January 11th. Uh, Shane Belcourt, another Indigenous filmmaker, he was uh, there with a bunch of other people in Ottawa in, a, in another big rally. And uh, so we were able to incorporate that. And so this is definitely one of the times, though, that I think in a lot of ways, what we had dictated the path we followed. The, 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 in some ways, the story did, did tell itself, which, which was kind of unnerving at times because you almost felt like you just had to get out of the way of the footage and let it do its thing. You brought up the, the idea of, you know, this archival footage collecting dust and you know, picking out the three minutes that you need for the evening news and then the rest of it kind of sitting on the shelf. Yeah. I wonder if you reached out to other broadcasters and other news orgs to um, to request some some sort of partnership or, or some sort of uh, agreement where you might be able to look at, at their footage too. I always wonder how that relationship works between news orgs. Does it work that way or is that just a conversation that just doesn't happen because of, you know, competition and, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, fortunately, APTN National News has an arrangement with CTV. And uh, so that includes accessing 
uh, some of its archival footage, which was also helpful in some cases. So yeah, that's, that's been a a wonderful partnership and it's pretty much an exclusive arrangement. So that, but again, uh, most of the footage is, is from APTN itself because it was, uh, frankly, a, a leader in, in covering the story from the beginning yeah. and then onward throughout uh, all the events. And what's really incredible about Idle No More, and, and to kind of bring this back to the theme of our show, which is media, media criticism and looking at these things through those lenses, um, what was really incredible about this was that a lot of footage that we would see on the evening news, whether it was through APTN or the CBC or, or, or any of their other competitors, was that a lot of this was being shot on cell phones. Yep. And you would get this kind of shaky, grainy footage from the front lines of these incredible resistance movements, you know, whether it was near uh, London where they were, you know, blocking the train tracks or whether that was out in British Columbia or, or in a mall in Winnipeg. And the news just, they all agreed. All the organizations agreed that we have to run this footage. I mean, it looks like shit. It sounds like shit, but this is what the movement is. And I, that's really not lost on me. I think that that's something really important that a lot of the source material for, for these breaking stories actually came from people themselves, where this just became the norm on the, on the evening news for those three months where it was really intense. And I don't know that we'll ever see that again. Well, I mean, it was out of necessity in part because the media weren't covering it, as as we show in the first part of the the, the documentary, which you can now stream on APTN Lumi. Let me just get that plug in there, aptnlumi.ca. It was done out of necessity because the mainstream media was was obsessed with the IKEA monkey, which uh, <laughs> a crazy story. I Google remember. it, uh, which emerged yeah, around the same time as the early Idle No More rallies uh, in, in mm-hmm. uh, early December. And so people said, well, if they're not going to tell our story, we'll tell it ourselves. And yeah, that's interesting, though, uh, for for you to observe that uh, maybe that started a trend where the mainstream media said, well, in the absence of us having no footage, let's use it. Maybe that started a a trend of, of relying on that for better or for worse. There was some hesitancy to covering it because... As you know, I, I was a part of mm-hmm. like coordinating some media and, and was kind of in the middle of things in, in terms of media and some of the coverage at first. And in talking with producers, you know, one of the big questions that would come up often was, is this just a flashpoint? Is this like an overnight thing that eventually goes away? And in fact, years later, when I talked to an editor with the New York Times, when I, when I, I first wrote for them, he brought it up and he said, you know, these indigenous resistance movements, these protests, they never last. And so we don't invest resources in them that way. Because I wanted to write about Standing Rock and connecting Standing Rock to Idle No More, to uh, Elsa Booktuk, to Burnt Church, to Williams Lake, to Oka, and just that this has been an ongoing resistance. And, you know, to, to hear an editor at the New York Times tell me that, you know, these things don't matter because they never last, they fire up and then they go away, was was shocking to say the least. But I do think that that really created a moment where you had to pay attention. You had no um, choice. And, and the brilliance of Idle No More becomes <laughs> the round dancing in the malls during Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, we, <laughs> when the, when, which is in the first part of the document. Very memorable moments, yeah. Right, where, where Canada is trying to go out and, and get its Air Jordans for their bratty kids. <laughs> um, you have hundreds of Indigenous people round dancing and... And taking up that space. So, I mean, it really is a a sort of a moment that could not be and and would not be uh, ignored. 
So I guess I'm thinking, Rick, you know, why now? Why is this documentary must-see TV for Canadians? I think because it was such a momentous time that arguably changed Canada forever. One of the people we spoke to, Hayden King, said, you know, I now look at the world as pre and post Idle No More. And so I think it's important to understand how Idle No More continues to live on in a different form. As one of the founders had said uh, in a separate conversation, you know, the idea that we would be outside legislatures every day for for years on end is is a bit of a strange <laughs> strange uh, requirement in order for a movement to be seen as viable i guess in the eyes of the new york times and now people are taking the energy the spirit that coalesced in idle no more and investing it through different channels i sometimes do wonder aloud you know will we see another conflagration if you will uh, another coming together of all these different forces in a similar way where people do take to the streets and uh, make their voices known. But um, I mean, it changed, it transformed so many lives, I think, on an individual basis, on a community basis, on a social basis. And now people are taking all the skills that they built, all the networks that they built. I mean, leadership and linkages were, I think, the living legacies of Idle No More. And so if you want to understand the indigenous, non-indigenous relationship in this country. I think I think you would do well to understand what gave rise to Idle No More and where Idle No More is now. I mean, we, we, we call the documentary The Power Was With Us. That was one of the quotes from one of the people we talked to. In fact, our, we use quotes as kind of chapter headings. But I know there are a lot of people who would say, hey, the power is with us. And, and, I, and I don't necessarily disagree. I think we've already talked about how Canadian media did covering I Don't Know More during 2012-2013. Hindsight being 2020, is Canadian media doing a better job today covering Indigenous issues than it was uh, during I Don't Know More? Yes and no. I mean, it's messy. It's it's not. It's hard to say because, I mean, I can't help but think about their whole, the, everyone getting on their hind legs around the, 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 the findings of the, the Michigan murder Indigenous women and girls inquiry saying Canada is continuing uh, with genocidal practices or practices that have genocidal uh, effects. And just, just the way people bristled in the mainstream media about that. Uh, usually, you know, cis white men, uh, older men, and it was almost ridiculed. On the other hand, the Overton window had shifted. So there were obviously some people either in the media or people trying to, to push the media uh, to go further, who were able to get more space for that. And so, you know, left to its own devices, I mean, you know, it's that old thing is, is or what's that expression? Is media a mirror or a window? Right. And uh, sometimes it's both. And uh, Indigenous people are doing their their, their best to smash either. So if, uh, if there are any gains in the media, it's not necessarily because of the media itself is what I'm trying to say. Right. And just finally, I want to talk about what we have learned about the limits of Canadian media in terms of their ability or willingness to cover Indigenous issues. Because the one thing that we saw during I Don't Know More was there was a continuation of coverage throughout because the story kept changing, because because the movement kept changing, because yeah. the request for meetings kept changing and the players would change. and. And these prominent voices would rise to the top. And, and you know, as, as I say, the movement continued to evolve in real time and therefore so did the coverage. What do we learn about the limits of Canadian media in terms of following these stories? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the Wet'suwet'en people in British Columbia. And it seems like the Canadian media wants to respond 
whenever there is a noted act of aggression, you know, in terms of like the RCMP is now made an exclusionary zone and that, that makes the news. But this story is ongoing and on the ground in the camp with the Wet'suwet'en people and what is happening there, there is still a story to cover. And yet it seems like when the cameras go away and then finally come back, all we get are these huge flashpoints, which really creates an ill political will inside of Canada because it just looks like, oh, the Indians are mad again and they've set some stuff on fire. (laughs) What are we learning about the limitations of Canadian media in their ability to cover Indigenous issues in Canada? Well, you know, I, I've I've shared this anecdote in various forms, but um, a lot of times when you're when you're trying to tell a story, you have to think of your audience, right? And I, I remember being advised, you know, when I worked in at CBC to think of the listener because I was working in radio, and and the, and the advice I got was from senior management: think about answering the question, "What's in it for me?" Well, if you're like me and you feel that we live in a settler colonial society, like that's the status quo. We live in an occupied part of the world and and continue until, you know, treaties are honored and the relationship is on, on an equal footing between two sovereign parties, right? I mean, that's to me, that's my baseline, and I suspect that's yours as well. Well, there's just no room for that in mainstream media, even the CBC, right? There's just no... It's such a radically different concept. You'd spend all morning on your morning show trying to bring people over to that. And of course, you know, I think most Canadians have conscious or unconscious investment in the idea uh, that Canada is a good place. And yeah, it's not perfect, but... And it's like saying it's a settler colonial society is, is a little different than, than that, to say the least. So I think unless and until we get to that place, you know, most journalists are purveyors of the status quo, right? And they and they feel like, oh no, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be pushing back against the state and or larger societal mores or, or values or what or predispositions. And it's just so that tells me the limitations of Canadian media in general. What is interesting to me about about that question uh, of whether Canadian media and journalists are sort of are the machines of the status quo um, because they are the ones that communicate it to the people. They're you know being the machinery behind the status quo. That seems to be a pretty offensive statement. That's a radical idea. But when journalists come to the other side and do cover indigenous issues with fervor and with complexity and with nuance, they become biased. Right, that journalists that don't want to participate in that conversation will throw those other journalists under the bus and go, "Well, now you're biased. You have this special interest. You're a bleeding heart liberal. You know your job is to present this balance, which is true. You know, but when you have people that have been traditionally left out of mainstream media and haven't been given the tools to to share a balanced story, bias is thrown out the window for me." Because it's really about allowing people to have the space to tell their story and to have their story told in their own words. And so I just think it's an interesting, it's, there's an interesting friction there that I don't, I mean, there have been many panels at journalism conferences and other places mm-hmm. where this question has been kicked around. And I've honestly, at least from where I sit today in this moment, I don't know that we, I've ever come across a, a decent answer to that question. And um, it's a it's a conflict and a, and a friction that is, I think, ever present when we talk about I don't know more, when we talk about what Suetin, when we talk about the pathway forward in Canada. I guess another way to put it is, if you're a Canadian reporter and 
an indigenous person, either through their actions or through their, their words, says Canada is an illegitimate state, in some ways you're in a conflict of interest, right? I've said in other contexts that indigenous media makers are in some sense war correspondents because the, the state is at war with us. I don't believe in neutrality. I don't believe in objectivity. I don't believe in bias-free reporting at all. So maybe I should have said that, made that clear up front, but that's my view. That's my bias. <laughs> That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. I am Ryan McMahon. Jesse Brown will be back next week. You can find me on Twitter at RMComedy. Canada Land is on Twitter at Canada Land. Where can people find you, Rick? Well, people can find me on the Twitter machine at the Rick Harp. Uh, you can also look up the podcast I host and produce, Media Indigena. And uh, if you want to watch this uh, documentary that I helped put together with Tim Fontaine, it is available now for streaming, part one, that is. Uh, just go to aptnlumi.ca, A-P-T-N-L-U-M-I. Go to Canada Land's website at canadalandshow.com where you can find their other podcasts and original reporting there. This episode was most excellently produced by David Crosby. Canada Land's managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what Canada Land does, please support them on Patreon at patreon.com slash Canada Land. Thank you.